There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Remember the 9-11 attacks and how they were plotted and planned? We're starting to see that again. Uh, Apparently, um, the first instance where we see the classic over-the-horizon attacks by a terror group, again, uh, emanating from Afghanistan. Central Asian men sent to Germany to build a cell, procure weapons, and launch attacks. Um, And these were arrested while they were scouting targets in Germany, trying to procure weapons and organize a terror attack. It's important to remember the Hamburg cell with Mohammed Atta, the man who plotted and planned the 9-11 attacks in Germany. Hans-Jacob Schindler, senior director with the Counter-Extremism Project, fills us in. Also, an update on the implications of the coup in Niger. Coming up on this episode... From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On this episode, two stories, both about terrorism. One, a reminder of 9-11 and the fact that it could happen again. And another, about the situation in Niger. Three weeks ago, it was considered the most stable country in Africa's Sahel. Now, it could be the weakest and the biggest door for terrorists to walk right through in that country and strike well beyond. We talk with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commanding general of U.S. Army Africa. But first, a situation in Germany. This is my conversation with Hans-Jacob Schindler, senior director at the Counter-Extremism Project. Hans, there's always, it seems, some kind of terror activity going on, either something being planned or something being uncovered. And um, just a very interesting thing that took place uh, in the last uh, few days or week or so that didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, and that were, that was that some uh, refugees from Central Asia were arrested in Germany. What do you, what do you know about that? So a couple of days ago, we had the first instance where the Islamic State Khorasan province, which is the affiliate of the Islamic State in Afghanistan, um, had apparently recruited and then asked to pose as refugees and travel to Germany, individuals from Central Asia, so Tajiks, Uzbeks, uh, you know, countries that border um, Afghanistan and where you could assume there is some um, Islamic State networks. Um, and these were arrested while they were scouting targets in Germany, trying to procure weapons and organize a terror attacks. This is fundamentally different from uh, the arrests in 2020, Um, were also Central Asians, Tajiks, were arrested in Germany, but they were already in Germany when they were contacted by ISIL or they contacted ISIL 
and then were asked to conduct terror attacks. So it is really uh, apparently um, the first instance where we see the classic over-the-horizon uh, attacks by a terror group, again, uh, emanating from Afghanistan. So now these individuals didn't travel from Afghanistan, they traveled from their home countries, but they took advantage, of course, of the massive amount of Ukrainian refugees, because that's the, the wave that they came into Germany. So, you know, there was some planning and thoughts behind this, which is a different category from just trying to find disgruntled individuals and then motivate them to do some terror operations when they're already there in the target country. What do you uh, think about the level of planning or the complexity of this operation? Well, the Islamic State Khorasan province is pretty much at the moment at the forefront of affiliates of the Islamic State around the world when it comes to attacks abroad. Um, they've already from Afghanistan attacked with rockets unsuccessfully, but, you know, nevertheless, Uzbekistan, they regularly attack uh, Pakistani security forces. They have attacked um, in Iran, Shiite clerics. Um, so this is an affiliate that you really should watch. Uh, Afghanistan is, uh, you know, whenever there was a story about terrorism emanating from one country towards Western targets, it is, of course, the classic story of Afghanistan. Um, and however, you know, with the great cow competition that is going on with the incredible brutality of the war in Ukraine, these news tend to be a little bit in the background. And as we had discussed many times, uh, I, I now you know have a theme for my Afghanistan presentations called Back to the Future, um, because this was the same attitude we had towards terror attacks emanating from Afghanistan until 2001. If you remember, we had attacks on American embassies in West Africa, in, in East Africa. We had attacks against um, a warship of the U.S. Navy in, in, in Yemen, in uh, Eden Harbor, before, you know, 9-11 really switched our focus back to Afghanistan. And the risk really here is that we see a similar development and we seem to be reacting very similarly. Because when I talked about this case, and there were arrests in Germany, where the main perpetrators were, but there were parallel arrests in the Netherlands as well of two more individuals that belonged to that very same cell. And then in the last couple of months, we just checked, and there have been arrests in quite a few other European countries of individuals linked to the Islamic State, Khorasan province. So there is really a concerned effort and a determined effort by the Islamic State, Khorasan province, to at least um, conduct a terror attack in Europe. Unfortunately, most of the time, targets in Europe are U.S. installations. So they're trying to hit both us and the Americans. Do you get the sense that this organization might be able to, I guess, leverage any success that they might have by spiriting these people into Germany or other places and use that as a uh, testing or proving ground for doing something bigger something more extensive and something more on the on the order of what did take place in 2001. Uh, in, in other words, um, can they get there again? I mean, they are under pressure, of course, by the Taliban in Afghanistan, but, uh, and we're monitoring their propaganda output in my organization on a daily basis, um, they still, despite in quite incredible brutality with which the Taliban are handling this issue, um, are able to conduct you know, high-scale, quite complex attacks. So 
They had a car bomb killing the deputy governor of Badakhshan province last month. And then three days later, a suicide bomber attacking that very same deputy governor's funeral, killing more officials. So they are used to organizing complex attacks in the conflict zone. Now, the Taliban being loosely in control of Afghanistan have an issue with uh, the Islamic State Khorasan province, which sets them apart from their brutal campaign against the national resistance uh, uh, front, uh, the remaining forces of the republic in the country, is that they are an ideological competitor. So there was always going to be some breathing room for the Islamic State Khorasan province that the Taliban are going to have to allow, because if they push too hard, they risk internal defections. Already half of the Islamic State Khorasan province fighters are ex-Taliban, right? And so, you know, that is an issue that they just cannot overcome because it's an ideological issue. So as the longer this group has breathing room in Afghanistan, which they maintain at the moment, the more the ambitions are going to grow. And these are all, you know, as terrorist organizations always say, they can try many, many times. We have to be successful all the time. They only have to be successful ultimately just once. Do you see the Taliban possessing the ability at this point to stamp this out, to tamp it down? Clearly, they haven't done it so far. Is that because they can't or because they haven't been paying attention to it or enough attention? What can they do? Because they don't want to. They don't want to because it is going to be an ideological problem if they push harder than they have already. So they killed quite a few ISIL fighters. They also killed a lot of former security officials um, of the Republic, relabeling them ISIL fighters afterwards to justify their killing. Um, But there is always going to be a, a borderline which they cannot cross. And that borderline is pushing all out against the Islamic State and therefore risking that part of their security forces, including part of the Haqqani network, who used to have and still maintains quite good relationships to the Islamic State Khorasan province, are going to simply defect and they're making the problem worse for the Taliban. Plus, of course, it's very hard for the Taliban to argue that these are bad terrorists, while they're happy to harbor all of the Al-Qaeda groups that are still operating in Afghanistan now as part of their official military, plus a couple of groups that even Pakistan would like them to control much more, in particular the Tereket Taliban, Pakistan, uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated Pakistani version of the Taliban that, however, primarily targets Afghanis, uh, Pakistani government and security forces, including bombing mosques of police forces in Peshawar a couple of uh, uh, months ago, for example. Right, And so they harbor those, they protect those, they allow those to cross the border to conduct attacks in Pakistan and come back. And then they somehow have to explain to their own guys that, however, this other terror group has a very similar ideology, all of a sudden is a mortal enemy. That's simply not working. If you are harboring terrorists, it's very hard to fight other terrorists, especially if they have the same ideology than you. So the West, the U.S. more specifically, um, you have said it and we've talked about it on numerous occasions. And you have assigned a theme to this, and this is Back to the Future, and it is absolutely on target. Is the U.S., is the West, uh, are they seeing this? And what are they doing about it? 
Well, I mean, obviously, this was a big news story in Germany. But when I was discussing this with colleagues from the UK, they had never heard of it. So even Afghanistan specialists are focusing, of course, justifiably, more on the questions of how about humanitarian aid? How are we going to, in the long term, deal with the Taliban regime? Yeah, is this a government that eventually will have to recognize as a government or can we ostracize the Taliban? As in my opinion, we should continue to do so. Uh, this is a brutal regime came come to power by military means and not at all in, in any way, shape or form legitimate in Afghanistan. That's the question that everyone's main focus is. And the terrorism issues have moved a little bit to the back. I have a feeling there is a certain amount also of exhaustion on our side. It's, we've heard these stories before, we've been there, we've done that. We just want it to be over. Unfortunately, it's not up to us wanting it to go over and up to us making it easier for us in Afghanistan by recognizing the Taliban. It is up to the terrorists of what they do. I personally and a couple of others warn very strongly against attempts to see the Taliban as a viable force with which to cooperate on counterterrorism operations, even if it's against the Islamic State. We, this Taliban regime doesn't follow any rules. We wouldn't know if these are ISIS fighters that they're arresting or just civilians or political opponents. We could be in a situation that we're negotiating a hostage situation of the Taliban's making as part of all of these things to get more money or more recognition from us. So this is a there is this narrative that we could find common ground with the Taliban on the Islamic State. This is a very dangerous narrative. What we can and should do is really see how much common ground we can find with the neighbors of Afghanistan, the Central Asian states, Pakistan. As soon as you know things are get a bit more uh, diplomatically easier, possibly even with Iran. Because these neighbors have no choice to deal with it. They, they can't reduce their interests in Afghanistan. They're bordering the state. They're getting all the drugs that the Taliban are producing in their societies. They're getting all the insecurity. If you in particular think about Pakistan uh, these days with terror attacks coming out of Afghanistan that have doubled uh, year by year on, on uh, since 2021, since the Taliban took over, they deal with this problem on a daily basis. So as difficult as it is to engage with these partners, I think it's the safer way than trying to do this with the Taliban directly. One other issue um, that's come to the fore on a different topic that I think we need to talk about briefly is Al-Shabaab conducted a suicide attack in Somalia. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how that happened. Well, I mean, it's not quite dissimilar to Afghanistan. Unfortunately, there are many elements that are very similar to Afghanistan. So Al-Shabaab is a... Al-Qaeda affiliate. At the moment, as far as personnel is concerned, only rivaled by the West African Al-Qaeda coalition, Jinim, that controls now large parts of Mali and large parts of Burkina Faso. Um, Al-Shabaab is very strong in the rural areas of the country, while the government holds the urban area. Sounds very familiar if you think about the situation in Afghanistan until about summer 2021. The Government of Somalia, however, is at the moment significantly supported by international troops. In this case, it's called the African Union Transition Mission in Somalia. It used to be the African Union Mission in Somalia without the transition, but it's a request 
of the uh, Somali government that this mission transitions out of the country by 2024. So similar mechanisms here, international troops are going to leave and the attacks happen every time we're at Mison, uh, as it is now called, vacates an area yeah. or a base. That's where Al-Shabaab attacks are. So where was this particular attack? Who, 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 were, the, who were the targets? Uh, as far as I understand, it was a base that the African Union forces had just handed over um, to the Somali government uh, and was supposed to be, I think, now manned by um, Somali uh, military forces. It was a simple suicide attack. Yeah. So I heard earlier that the uh, Somali parliament leader said it was a case of traitors. Uh, have you heard anything about that? Well, again, not unparalleled to Afghanistan. We discussed at length in the years before our withdrawal of green on blue, blue on blue, blue on green attacks, which meant the Taliban placed or recruited individuals within the Afghan security forces who then targeted not only um, the Afghan security forces itself, but primarily Western foreign trainers as you know, the last couple of years in Afghanistan, all the international forces was to, would do is train and assist. They didn't actually fight Taliban anymore uh, and to attack those trainers. Similar situation in Somalia as well. Here too, Al-Shabaab very obviously has uh, sources within the Somali government structure, including within the security and military forces of Somalia. And that's the same thing. So you have these classic insider attacks. So the parallels are quite uncanny. One last thing. Um, can you assess the strength of Al-Shabaab in that region? It's really hard to tell. So, you know, credible reports talk about a couple of thousands of fighters, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Um, there are There is quite a significant part of the population that for a long time has harbored sympathies. Um, there are Al-Shabaab-linked businesses that you know, including in in you know urban areas <coughs> that get extorted by Al Shabaab, right? So your family lives in that province. Al Shabaab knows who your family is. If you're a businessman in, let's say, Mogadishu, and you you get presented a simple deal: you pay part of your income, or your family dies. Um, so that makes it a a similarly entrenched problem, and I still fail to understand why the Somali government is so eager to get the African Union forces out. Yes, of course, it's always bad to have foreign forces on your soil, but I just do not see a sufficient capacity of the Somali forces to defend uh, uh, all parts of Somalia. And you've seen that President Biden decided to bring American troops back into, Afghan, uh, into Somalia, um, a decision which I'm sure he didn't take lightly indicating that the U.S. government, too, feels that things are not going particularly well in Afghan, in Somalia. Nevertheless, the, re the withdrawal schedule is set. By 2024, they're out. This is a very complex world you live in and you work on every day, and um, you know a lot more than we do. And thank you for taking time to share it with us. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director at the Counter-Extremism Project, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. That's Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project. Now to another terrorism concern. A couple of weeks ago in Niger, a military junta essentially took the president hostage and took over the government there. 
there are great concerns in that region about terrorism. And we asked Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, retired now, the former commanding general of U.S. Army Africa, if this would impact the terrorism situation in that country, because that country is the most stable in the region. You already have Mali and Burkina Faso that have been taken over by military juntas, and both of those countries are plagued by terrorists. Other countries in the region are as well. But this country, Niger, was thought to be the most stable. So the question we asked him was how this would impact that situation and what role the U.S. might be playing. You have extremists and terror groups that are operating in that region, and you also have Russia operating in that region. Uh, I want to ask, which of those threats is the worst? The Russian uh, influence there or the or or the, the extremist, or is it just a big hodgepodge of everything that's a problem there? So you've got uh, millions of terribly uh, unfortunate people that are um, paying the price for the instability uh, in their in their countries. Um, you know, you've got uh, enormous wealth, but it's controlled by a very small number of people. Whether it's in you know uranium or diamonds or other uh, uh, materials that are in the earth. Uh, and, and then you've got um, other natural resources, but it's nobody except a few people are benefiting from that. And so, so you've got an instability there that is causing, I think, uh, it's going to cause hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to decide that their only chance to survive is to leave, to get away from that instability and head to Europe. So um, in my view, the... Uh, the Kremlin, of course, knows this. This is not an accidental or coincidental outcome. This is something that they want to uh, uh, accelerate, to put more pressure on European countries. Uh, the French for, and I'm not expert on this, but the French have lost influence in the region. And so there's a bit of a, a vacuum there. And uh, Mr. Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenaries um, are in business in this region, uh, extracting enormous amounts of wealth, uh, either from the uh, people in power or from the mines themselves. And that's a heck of a business model. And a lot of that money goes back to Russia. Uh, of course, I can't prove this, but my my assessment is that part of the reason that Prigozhin is still alive and not in jail is because Putin told him, I, look, I'll let you live and I'll let you continue to walk around free and have your business, but I need you back in Africa and focus your efforts there. Uh, continue to send uh, uh, money home, but also uh, whatever instability you can help create or accelerate there, you know, that, that will have a positive effect for Russia in its war against Ukraine and, and its competition with Europe. So I think that's a part of it. The terrorist extremists, uh, Islamic extremists and terrorist organizations that are there, of course, they're able to take advantage of that instability as well and the very unhappy people that live there. What, if anything, can or should the U.S. military do in this situation? So this, this is a great question. And, and uh, you know, the U.S. has U.S. Africa Command, which is based in Stuttgart. We've had uh, different variations of uh, 
special forces, uh, regular forces, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force uh, operating uh, in there. But the, the scale of the challenge uh, and the inadequacy of resources to match the challenge is always going to leave us falling short of what it is we're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, Africa is the continent of Africa is three times the size of continental United States. So, I mean, just for a sense of scale of what we're talking about. Um, and, and so it's not that if we just had 50,000 more U.S. troops there in Africa, things would be a lot better. It has to come back to the strategy again. What What is the outcome that we want uh, for strategic outcome that the U.S. is seeking for the continent of Africa, but also the many different nations that are there in Africa that are all so different from each other and have so many different competing uh, issues and challenges and opportunities. And, and I think um, what can the U.S. military do? What they have been doing um, is trying to help build capacity in the various uh, militaries that are there. Uh, such an example of how military in a liberal democratic country operates with respect for civilian authority. Um, and helping them be able to defend themselves. I I think that's probably, at this point, the, the best that we're going to be able to do. Retired U.S. General Ben Hodges, who was a former commanding general of U.S. Army Africa, now he's a senior mentor for NATO for logistics. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode... We continue our conversation with General Hodges, this time the topic, Ukraine. When you look at a map, you realize quickly that Crimea is the decisive terrain of this war. There's something specific that Ukraine needs to do. If they have a weapon that can go 300 kilometers, the Black Sea Fleet has to leave. It, it can't sit there in Sevastopol. And if that took place... Russia loses this unsinkable aircraft carrier that it has now for launching attacks all along Ukraine's southern coast and into the interior. He answers the key question, why they're not doing it already. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.